to the former surface country. And he suggests that this is a balancing mechanism. Now, of course, if you adopt the the equilibrium theory of price, which we have spent some time on and argued against in our preference, following Karl Menger is the disequilibrium theory. But if you are on the basis of the uh, equilibrium theory, then this uh, uh, sounds very plausible. The problem is that in practice it didn't work. Because early on, I think in the 1970s, there was this imbalance between the United States and Japan. Japan being the surplus country and the United States a deficit country. And they (coughs) put pressure, the Americans put pressure on the Japanese to revalue, increase the value of their, their yen. And that will bring the balance about. Well, it never happened. It got worse and worse and worse. And in the case of Germany also, there was a, Germany was the surplus country, United States the deficit country, and there was a revaluation of the Deutschmark upwards, and uh, everybody expected the balance to re-establish itself never happened. And uh, so that meant the theory of Friedman is wrong. It just doesn't, in reality, it doesn't happen that way. Now, I, I have always laughed at this. I should have cried, actually. So, uh, uh, utterly naive to uh, uh, to come up with this theory. I think another analogy is much more appropriate because a devaluation, in effect, the U.S. dollar was devalued, devalued again, and the, uh, as they did devalue the Japanese. Uh, exports uh, kept increasing and the American exports to Japan kept shrinking and the same with Germany, same with other countries. Now, here's the explanation and I, I find that very convincing. When you devalue your own currency, this is equivalent to uh, mutilating yourself or self-inflicted wounds such as cutting off a finger or cutting off an arm. That's what devaluation is. It cannot possibly make you stronger in international trade, but it will make you weaker. 
So you want to compete with your opponents. You is like a sportsman preparing for the race and just before the race mutilates himself himself. Well, that's not hard to predict the outcome of the race, the country causing itself uh, this uh, damage will lose and the other will have the advantage which kept the stable stability of the currency. So the theory of Friedman is completely wrong on every side. And in just immediately before 1971, Friedman prevailed. He came out with this theory of balancing trade through uh, allowing the currency to get devalued. He developed this, but at this early stage, he was left out of the uh, lecture hall. This is, people said this is crazy. But then, as, eight, as 1971 approached, more and more people took a second look at Friedman's theory and said, gee, that might just work, so let's try that. And that's what happened, the introduction of the floating Occurrences in uh, 1971, it was exactly 40 years ago when this happened, and this 40 years caused a lot of damage, and now we are actually staring in the face of a collapse of the world monetary system. Uh, it may not be obvious to everybody yet, because the <coughs> governments try to hide the facts and uh, withheld, withhold information from the public and uh, this is very unfortunate because when, it ha when the next explosion like 2008 will happen then uh, the majority, vast majority of people will be uh, surprised that they are completely unprepared. So that's where we stand. Now, uh, Friedman, in his book, uh, talks about the future of irredeemable currencies. And he does admit, to his credit I say, he does admit that it's not a foregone conclusion that irredeemable currencies will survive indefinitely. But on the other hand, he says it's no longer true 
what Irving Fisher, an American economist, said in 1911, which was basically that irredeemable paper money has always been a curse to the country employing it. And Fisher uh, Irving, uh, I mean Friedman says this is no longer true. In other words, with his addition to economics and others, we now have enough knowledge and expertise and so on to manage the irredeemable currency such as the irredeemable dollar, irredeemable pound sterling and other, the euro as well because with this knowledge we can manipulate things, interest rates, money supply etc etc and as a result we have the new millennium where gold and silver no longer will have a significant role to play. Instead, the irredeemable currencies will uh, guide our destinies. Well, of course, we always said that that's not going to happen, and we have so much more reason today. They say this, but of course Friedman is no longer with us, he died, so we cannot uh, answer our arguments, but all this body of knowledge, so-called, which has been built up during the past uh, 40 years, uh, is not going to help us out. In fact, it's just make, going to make things worse. And so much power is concentrated in the hands of uh, governments, central banks, that they will fight tooth and nail uh, any initiative to change the course of the history and uh, Unfortunately, that's what it looks today. Uh, the disaster cannot be averted. It's, it's going to be fulfilled, which is very unfortunate. And we just stand there helplessly waiting for the worst to happen. So I think I will sign off here and give you a chance for discussion. Uh, so um, any uh, comments? About I have a question. Mm -hmm. uh, I understand how uh, 
but cutting out bimetallism, the Chinese, uh, the Chinese economy was undercut when the price of silver dropped. Obviously, their international position was reduced. So how did this work with Roosevelt buying silver? Wouldn't that bring up the price of silver? Could you elaborate on that, please? You are talking about silver? Yes. You said uh, Roosevelt initiated a buying plan for silver. Why did that hurt China? Wouldn't it bring Chinese wealth higher because they had lots of silver? Uh, I, I'm not clear on this. You see, uh, the silver was part of the monetary system, it was money. Uh, in uh, China, they didn't mint coins as such, it was a Western custom. They had these uh, boats or shoes, silver, I, I explained. I uh, had to bring a photo how this looks, and uh, in the last minute I didn't, but uh, you can, uh, you can uh, look up in Wikipedia and other places how the Chinese money looked like. It didn't look like our coins at all, it was mostly these irregular pieces. All right, now, uh, what effect the decision of Roosevelt had that he started buying silver on the advice of his economic advisors, uh, the argument was that if you buy, keep buying silver, the world price of silver will rise and it will pull, uh, pull up the international economy, prices will rise in general, not just silver, but other prices. This was the theory. And we don't have to ask whether this succeeded or not, because the effect on China was different, because uh, China was on silver standard, and as the international price of silver kept going up. Uh, the China, there was a drain of silver from China to the West. And that was lethal to the Chinese economy because that meant uh, less money and falling prices, deflation, depression. Uh, unemployment, all, all the usual consequences, unemployment, uh, serial bankruptcies, uh, and uh, general power, increasing poverty. So when the Chinese, when the silver came out of, out of China, what did the Chinese get in return? They must have traded it mm. or just give it away. Did, did they bring in Western goods or, you know, what did they trade their silver for? Well, uh, well I, I think it's Eight. just. Oops. <laughs> it's uh, just a simple uh, mechanism that silver, like water, flows to the lowest point where it can. 
and uh, silver left the country, left China, because it was bid up the price. That's why silver moved. And, uh, and that's why China was losing silver. Yes. Um, Professor, what we're asking is that if they're, if they're sending, if domestic Chinese are sending silver outside of China, what are they getting in exchange? Are they keeping it in United States dollars, gold, paper? <laughs> well, they, they didn't have any need for that. Mm. Uh, so. I mean, throughout history, we, we observed starting it in, in the uh, 19th century, even mm -hmm. earlier, China didn't have any need for uh, the Western goods, so China wanted silver. Now, uh, here, this is a case where the silver was bid away, but. Uh, I think it was still true that China didn't, but uh, once, once the silver started flowing on its own, spontaneously, you couldn't stop it. Uh, Maybe it was replaced by, by gold, you know. That's a possibility. For dollars and more dollars. Well, gold. No. No. Dollar, dollar is gold. You're, it's being replaced by dollars, which is gold. Which was not circulating in China IOU. Well, it's an IOU on gold. Yeah. But, oh, uh, IOU on gold. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, this uh, was a disaster, and this is uh, acknowledged by economists all over the world that it was a very foolish decision uh, on the part of uh, Roosevelt. But, uh, I mean, all his advisors were very unsound thinkers. Uh, he had lots of economic advisors, but no sound <laughs> economic advisors even by them. These were like uh, economic historians, or agricultural economists, or labor economists. Uh, but they... Uh, but the need was is sound monetary economics, which at that time still existed. Now this is 1935. Yeah. Uh, they died out. It's a, yeah. it's a uh, tragedy. It was an endangered species, and then it yeah. was helped to put to sleep. Louis. The, the reason why um, this caused great misery and etc. in China was because because they were on a silver standard. Right? That's why. I mean, if they had been on a on a gold standard or another yeah. standard, it would not have had the same. Effect. It it wouldn't. Right. Yeah. So that's so that's the that's the reason. It yes. Has this effect in China. Yeah. Um, but what do you think? Okay, Roosevelt had. Um, bad or poor advice 
But what was his true intention? I mean, was it, I mean, did the U.S. want to replenish their stocks of silver, or did they just want to... Uh, <coughs> well, that was uh, the theory of the two men. Pearson was the name of one, and Warren. They were both agricultural economists, and they were strictly, in terms of <coughs> their theories, were strictly based on this uh, supply-demand equilibrium theory of price. And uh, they also extended this by saying, if you can raise one particular commodity's price, then the others will follow, and, uh, which is not necessarily true, but in agriculture it may, may be observed more often than elsewhere. So they just persuaded Roosevelt that this is the thing to do. There is one price which you can manipulate, the price of silver, that's the obvious thing. Completely ignoring what effect it would have on China. I mean, there are lots of books which go into this question, all the details. And, and if you're interested, it's worthwhile. I mean, talking about blunders which politicians have made over the past 100 years, it's endless, but this is one of the biggest. To uh, reuse a country which is potentially so great as China to an economic dwarf is just amazing by manipulating the price of silver. So, Yes. I think Roosevelt was sympathetic to the communists. Uh, he and Uncle Joe, Uncle Stalin. So maybe under there was some intention to not help the nationalist Chinese, but the other guys. So possibly. Um, Mark. So here we are, 160 years about um, after the Opium Wars, and have kind of a similar situation, which are huge trade imbalance, uh, but this time it's not opium which is being exported to China, but paper dollars. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, um, so, China has caught up a lot, but it is still under a huge paper standard, uh, paper standard itself, and there's, I think, uh, a lot of misallocations. Could you give, would you dare to give some predictions um, on, on, on the Chinese economy during the coming crisis and coming years. Yeah. A, a lot of uh, commentators are pessimistic about China. They are predicting a huge uh, depression coming up in China. Uh, I, as far as I'm concerned, I don't see that at all. Um, because uh, uh, the Chinese are hardworking and frugal, and uh, uh, 
even if they lose a lar large part of their paper reserves, which they keep in, in dollars, but now also they diversified into other currencies, and they are going to lose on that account. They might gain even more on the <coughs> on the metal account, silver and gold. This, uh, it's, it's unprecedented in the history of any communist country that the government is encouraging the population to hoard silver and gold. It's unprecedented. In fact, the communist, uh, communist government confiscated the uh, silver and gold of the people, starting with uh, the Russians <coughs> and following with all the others. By the way, uh, that was also the case. It's not specifically communist, it's specifically under dictatorships. Hitler also started his uh, rule by if not confiscating, but at least forbidding uh, trade in gold and silver. And they were actually more, Hitler and his regime was more, more effective uh, than the communists. Katana. And professor, I am uh, a question. Uh, you have changed, uh, in my opinion, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you have changed your thinking about the causes of uh, silver demonetization, or not? Be uh, uh, changed? Uh, your thinking about the co causes of silver monetization. Demonetization. Demonetization. Yeah, demonetization. 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 Yes. Yeah. I mean, um, I've got a, a quick comment about Milton, Schum uh, Milton Friedman's, Friedman's um, theory. Um, he said that, you know, under a gold standard, you have the surplus and deficit country, mm -hmm. and gold moves, uh, prices rise in the. Uh, in the surplus country and they fall in the deficit country and but for those that have attended earlier courses you'll know that that's not the way that it worked instead of going into the the, the movement did not affect the price of the goods it affected the volume of goods on offer via changing the discount rate so the discount rates would change and wherever discount rates were moving in a lower direction, you'd have a consequent expansion in the amount of consumer goods available. 
So, one, Friedman got that wrong. So, the, the premise for his theory was wrong. So, obviously, when you have this idea that floating currencies can do the same thing, well, they were never doing, they were never replicating what the gold standard did anyway. So, what happens is that countries that build up surpluses, you know, they uh, exacerbate the problem because they invest in the securities of their debtors which allows them to continue this vicious circle just by continuing the sort of the trajectory in interest rates, which is downwards anyway. So this is a big sort of logical sort of this was this was this was this was erroneous from the beginning from Friedman's. Yeah, this um, is uh, what you say is absolutely right. <coughs> However, Friedman was not the only one, mm. because that is still the standard interpretation how the gold standard operates, that there are big flows of gold back and forth between surplus and deficit countries. But if you examine the record, you will find that actually very, very little gold moved under <coughs> <clears throat> the 19th century the gold standard, which was of course centered in London, and the Bank of England was managing it. And uh, economists are still wondering how on earth the Bank of England could manage the world gold standard on a tiny basis of gold, because the Bank of England had very little gold which goes to show that uh, there is no way to predict how much credit, sound credit you can build on a certain fixed amount of gold. Because if this gold starts moving fast enough, then the amount of credit you can uh, build on it increases accordingly. And that's all good credit. You know, it's private, it's not government, not inter-government credit. You mean real bills? Hmm? You mean real bills there? It's, yeah. it's credit built on gold on the gold, gold which is circulating, you see. And, and you can see miracles happening there, as in the case uh, of the Bank of England managing the world trade through real bills, all gold, these are bills payable in gold within 90 days. And, uh, and uh, the uh, amount of world trade in 1913 was so high, the level of of uh, international trade that uh, I think it was sometime in the 1970s that the uh, world could catch up with its previous record. It's amazing. I mean, you would think that with the addition of things which didn't exist in 13, television and uh, high powered cars and jet engines and what have you, the uh, uh, 
level of world trade reached the same level as it was in 1913 uh, very quickly after World War I. It's not, not the case at all. It took a long time. And uh, uh, this is a very significant observation. That there is no set limit of credit, sound credit you can build on a certain amount of gold. Because the gold circulation, if, if it spans, that could increase the credit accordingly. About the intention to ruin China, I don't know whether you remember, but in our childhood, people were speaking in Hungary about a yellow danger, mm -hmm. that the, the Chinese could invade the world. Perhaps uh, that there were rumors about that in America as well. You think it's still a danger? No. I, I think the Chinese people are very peaceful. I mean, look, look no, at this. No, childhood. This is a, a well, even, in even in our adulthood, not just childhood, not our, in also in our adulthood. <laughs> then, then I didn't hear to speak about this. Anymore. I mean, it can be, but I didn't hear. Well, uh, anyhow, uh, this. But, uh, Chinese danger or yellow danger or what have you is uh, is always there. Some politicians will always exploit the uh, irrational fear of the of the, uh, the Chinese uh, or Japanese. Uh, I I don't share that. That then the Chinese came and started to come to Hungary, people were against them because uh, I think first the criminals came to our, to our country and there were banks after the change of regime. When they, when, they, when they started to come to Hungary, to, there were companies where only 11 directors were. No uh, employee, only directors, and, uh, and people didn't know that, that the Chinese were wise and, and uh, hardworking. But just because uh, there were only 11 directors, it doesn't make it criminal. Well, I don't know. I uh, we have been to China. Uh, I liked what I saw. And uh, it's a great country, there's no uh, denying it. They have learned a great deal. I wish we have, had learned uh, correspondingly, but I think we are just staying <laughs> uh, behind. I mean, the Amer United States was the world's leading creditor country 
in uh, the 1980s. And they lost that goal, and it took just a couple of decades for China. It's their fault because they transferred the whole industry to China. Oh, there's more than that. That, that was part of it too. But uh, be it as it may, I think it, it was a small miracle what China did. And we'll see, we'll see, uh, because what the Americans are doing presently is just uh, running into uh, catastrophe and disregarding the in interest of other and even their own. The Americans will suffer most when they have to retrench. This is. Uh, going to be very, very painful for the Americans and uh, you can blame it on the American political leadership squarely. And they are, they are just completely unable to learn from their own mistakes. Unwilling. Um, we have this idea that uh, weak dollar is a strong dollar because that's the thing. So. In order to make the dollar so stronger, you have to make it weaker. You have to devalue it, you have to push down the value, and that's happening right in front of our eyes. And we see how America is losing ground as a result of No, it's still the same. Of course, they don't admit it that the dollar, but this uh, QE1, QE2, is just another name for devaluing the dollar. A disastrous policy. If they stabilize the dollar before China stabilizes its its one uh, in terms of gold, then they lost the game. If China does that first, I think you will see a different world. China with us, gold or silver money is going to be very, very strong economically. And that's the way I see it. Any, any more questions? Comments? No. I'm going to ask another one. Do you, do you, Professor, do you expect China to go back to a silver standard? Could. Could. I, I, uh, it suggests, you know, what's happening in the silver market suggest to me that the Chinese are manipulating the silver. In other words, they don't want silver to run to, I don't know, hundreds of dollars an ounce, which it could, which it could. They 
would rather take the time. Now, whether it's because they want to give a chance to the poorest Chinese peasant that he should have a few silver coins in his possession, or they have, uh, they are actually uh, putting a strategy into effect which would harm the Western countries more, I, I don't know. Both. 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 They, they create a stronger middle class at no yeah. cost. See, the, everything that the Americans did was wrong. They should have simply copied what the Chinese did. The Chinese uh, developed their silver refining capacity enormously. So that... When? Hmm? When? When did the uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Okay. So that if you had any quantity of silver to be refined, uh, the, uh, you have to take it to China because that's what where the capacity. The Americans should have done the same. They didn't. Okay. Then the Chinese started buying silver and encouraging their people to and make it available in every small village so that the peasants far away from the big cities could also have access to silver. Now in America, there's no. I mean Mexico, yes. Who, who goes Salinas Price? Uh, he, he has an outlet in the smallest Mexican village. You can buy and sell silver coins. But in the United States, uh, certainly it didn't spread out into, into the villages. You have to have a size of the city. And then, <coughs> the Chinese believe in financing trade in terms of gold and silver. The Americans did. So, as a result, the American position becomes less and less effective against the Chinese. Uh, I think uh, that's a problem, or the problem is coming and coming soon. Any more questions? Reading? Just a little comment on this idea of Chinese people selling machinery, building machinery, and it comes up when you talk to them that the back of their mind is the peasant in the back country. They're thinking about that and bringing wealth or, or work or whatever. And if it's not altruistic, it's certainly preemptive of revolution. So they are thinking that, no question. Mm. Any, any more questions, comments? <coughs> well, I think on that note, we will adjourn for the day. Um, thanks very much, Professor. Thank you.